0: All right, Revelation 4, we're looking at verses 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne Saying, "Worthy are you, O uh, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The grass withers, the flowers fade away. The word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we uh, look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, these are visions that." You have given us because you want to reveal yourself to us. You want us to know you. Uh, Father, we know, if we know ourselves even a little bit, we know that um, without the work of your Holy Spirit, we will not know you. Our ears are naturally closed. Our hearts are naturally hard. And so we ask that you would that you would be here by your Holy Spirit and change that, that you would uh, illuminate this word to us and that we might, uh, we might see and hear. God, uh, we, we trust that you will do this because you, uh, you're a gracious God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a, a, a documentary on World War II uh, that came out several years ago. And it, it focused on the events of, of D-Day, when the, when the Allies, right, stormed the beach at Normandy, which was the, the decisive blow, not the, the end of the war, but the decisive blow against Germany. And one of the things that was fascinating about this uh, documentary was they, they took these two American soldiers uh, that they were interviewing separately, and, they, and they, clipped, uh, they clipped these two pieces of their interview sort of back-to-back And uh, the first was a soldier who was on the ground, and he was, you know, foot soldier, so he's advancing on, uh, you know, uh, on the enemy, shooting his gun, you know, like he's on the ground walking, right? And he says about that, about those moments, reflecting back on it, uh, he says that he can remember thinking to himself, there is no way we can win feeling that kind of despair. And then they, they juxtaposed that with this other guy, another American soldier who was a pilot. And he was flying over the same battle at the same time. And he says, I can remember looking down and seeing, you know, wave after wave of our foot soldiers, you know, advancing on the enemy and driving back the Germans. And he said, I can remember thinking to myself, there is no way we can lose. Isn't that incredible? Wa- they were both right there in the midst of it—the exact same battle—and they had completely different uh, uh, takes on it. They had completely different understandings of what was going on. And obviously, the the guy, the, the pilot. Why was he so confident? Because he could, see, he could see the bigger picture, right? He could see what, what the guy on the ground could not see. That his actions, even though they might seem futile, they were having great effect. And so he was hopeful because he could see the whole picture. There's no way we can lose. He, he, he saw the, the totality of, of, of reality. In this semester, you know, if you've been with us, that we're studying through Revelation, uh, which is uh, the last book of the Bible, which God has given, has given to his church basically to do exactly that, to, to give us real reality. Our theme that we uh, talk about every week is the unveiled truth, that God is sort of pulling back the curtain of reality and showing us what's really going on in this world. What's really happening, despite what it might seem or feel like is happening. And so, what I want you to see tonight, uh, Revelation 4 really might be kind of, the, in a sense, the foundation of the whole book. You could kind of think about it like the cornerstone of the, of the entire book. This, this vision that John gets of the throne room of heaven is foundational. To everything about revelation and in some sense everything about reality. And so that's what I want to I look at tonight. That's what we're going to see is the unveiled truth of reality. And really what's at, at the heart of that is the fact that God is on the throne of the universe. God is on the throne. That's the main idea and we're going to look at uh, sort of two ideas or two sub points, two points along those lines. First we're going to see that God who is on the throne, that he reigns. And then secondly, we're going to see that the God who is on the throne is worshipped. Those are the two ways we're going to look at it. So Let's dig in. First, I want you to see from this vision that God is on the throne and he reigns. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to us, right, it, that, that the, first, this, the first thing that John gets in this vision is a vision of a throne room. That may not seem like a big deal. You, you know, you might gloss over, and of course that's, that's what he sees. But I want you to think about John's context. If you've been with us, you, you've heard a little bit about it. So John's writing this towards the end of the first century. So this is John, one of Jesus' actual disciples. And this book is given to the church at a time when, you know, we're just a few decades removed from Jesus himself being on earth, and all of a sudden, though, uh, there's a there's a lot of persecution. Uh, the Roman Empire is persecuting the church, partially, to say the least. And basically, the church is looking around and thinking, "Look, we we believe that Jesus is is God, that He's the King of everything, and that He rose from the dead. And yet now, we're, this is what we have to put up with. And so they're confused, and and uh, you know certainly frustrated and wondering, basically wondering, what's going on in this world? And they very well might have been wondering, is, is anybody really even in charge of this? You almost, get the, you almost get the feeling that John might have expected to see a throne, but with nobody on it. Because that's probably the way life felt if you were in the church in the first century. That sure, we believe in God, and he, you know, he, I guess he could be in control of everything, but, but he doesn't seem to be. But what John sees, he gets a glimpse of real reality, that there is a throne at the center of everything, and God is on it. And he's reigning from that throne. And he's reigning right then, in 90 AD, and he's reigning right now, in 2016 that God is on the throne. And I think there's at least one other little, uh, sort of little, that's in quotes, detail uh, that would have been really impactful in this regard to John. Uh, you see it in verse six. Look at verse six. It says, uh, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. All right, so why is that a big deal? Well, in, in the Hebrew culture, and really you see sort of throughout the Bible, the, the ocean, the sea is symbolic of, of chaos, of disorder, of evil, of the unknown, of the, of the yeah, of all things sort of scary, turbulent, right? It's the, it's the, you know, the depths of the ocean, who knows what's down there. Um, so that, yeah, basically the sea is this picture of chaos, right? You think about in Genesis 1, if you were with us last fall, right? In Genesis 1, you read that God, His Spirit, hovered over the waters, and then he brought order to the chaos as he created. Uh, you might think about Jesus walking on the water, right? He's walking on the, on the waves of this turbulent storm, and he calms it. In Revelation 13, we're going to see that the evil beast is going to come out of the sea. So the sea represents chaos, evil. And so you see what John sees. He gets this picture of the throne room, and right Right in the throne room is this ocean that is perfectly calm. And it's beautiful. It's like like crystal. It's so smooth, it's almost like glass. And so certainly you get the picture that God is reigning on his throne. And that what's really happening in this world is that God reigns over all the chaos, all the evil, all the evil. All the, um, all the disorder is completely under his control. Because you're actually going to see later uh, in Revelation, in Revelation 21.1, right, get this, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So when, you know, when it's all said and done, John's going to get this vision where there's no sea. So that's not what this is a picture of. This is a picture of what's going on right now, not a picture of heaven one day someday, heaven and earth this is a This is a picture of what's true right now, right where, where chaos and disorder and evil still exists, and John gets the picture that he is in perfect control over all of it. So while you know John and his readers might feel like they are just getting tossed around in the sea of life. You know, their friends dying, being killed by the Roman Empire, uh, not being able to buy food because you're a Christian and be able to feed your family, not being able to find work, all sorts of persecution when they feel like the world is just turning upside down on them. John gets this picture that God is perfectly in control over all of it. And that's a glimpse of reality. And look, the same. So what does that mean for us? It means exactly the same thing. Do you ever feel like, I mean, certainly you do. Do you ever feel like your life is just sort of unraveling in a bunch of different directions? You feel all sorts of chaos. And you wonder if, does God have anything to do with this? Does he even care? You know, maybe you feel like your world is coming apart because your family's coming apart. And it just feels chaotic, or maybe because you're you're studying as hard as you can and your grades are dropping, and you, and you just feel this chaos. Or maybe you've you've shown up to college and you've thought it's going to be this great experience of having you know making memories and having friends, and and all you feel is this this sort of chaotic loneliness. And you look around and you, and you feel like. There are people everywhere and I'm completely alone. And you don't know what to do about it. And why would God do this? Maybe you feel the, the chaos of your heart. Maybe the, you feel the chaos of your heart because it's torn between... You actually do believe in God and you believe what He says is true about sexuality. And yet, and yet you still feel attraction to the, to, to the same sex. And you feel this this chaos in your own heart and soul. And how... Where is God in any of that? And what I want you to say... like, If you feel that way about anything, you need this vision. I need this vision. Because we have this vision of God who is absolutely in control. That nothing happens outside of His careful... Careful ordinance his fingers his fingerprints are over all of it everything answers to him and so look maybe that, that still begs the question then well okay so how does alright I'll grant you God's in charge right he's on the throne fine he's in charge but then is he, is he just mean how, how could he allow these things to happen it just doesn't make any sense And I want to give you, I guess, just a couple of thoughts about that. One, you know, we sort of have to go back to the vision. He's definitely in control. He is holy, holy, holy. He's bigger than we can imagine. And so if God really is bigger than we can imagine, if he really is sovereign over everything, then certainly sometimes he might do things that we just don't understand. We tend to want want a God who's big enough to take care of what we want Him to take care of, but small enough that He still answers to us. And we just, quite frankly, we just can't have it that way. But look, even more than that, you you can at least know, we can at least know this. It can't be because He doesn't care. It can't be because He just doesn't care. Because... The whole Bible shows this, and we're going to zero in on this next week. I really hope that you come back next week. What you're going to see, uh, what we're going to see is that God doesn't just sit aloof and just sort of dish out suffering and pain and sit up in heaven and just see how people deal with it. But he actually enters, enters the pain and suffering himself, right, which we see on the cross. How could God allow something so awful as what happened on the cross? Think about that. The only person, there's been one person, one, that was perfect. There's been one person that didn't deserve bad stuff. And he showed up and the world killed him. It's the worst thing that's ever happened. The world killed its creator. It's awful. How could God allow that? But yet, don't you see, at the same time, it's the greatest thing that has ever happened. God allowed this horrific evil because he, he somehow brought about unimaginable good out of it. It was, the very, it was the most evil act that brought about the salvation of the world. And so it, it certainly can't be that God just sits on high and doesn't care. So we see that God is on the throne and he reigns. He's in control. And that can be an incredibly comforting uh, vision. The second thing I want us to see is that God is on the throne and he is worshipped. All right, so remember as we sort of dive into this, that in Revelation we're dealing with visions, right? We talked about a week or two ago that they're like political cartoons, right? That they're, um, they're, they're images that are meant to convey a point. They're not trying to show what Jesus... Is actually um, what he looks like they 're trying to depict what he 's like, who he is right, and so we get we get some of that here in this you know, in this vision. Uh, what do we see what, what is what is God like on the throne? And we see that he 's incredibly beautiful you don 't really get any details as to his appearance, uh, but we get uh, we get things like uh, he has the appearance of Jasper and carnelian, which are, are Precious jewels, some sort of stones. Um, jasper is usually a, a sort of swirled pattern. It's never the same. It's evidently translucent. It glows as light passes through. It's very beautiful. Um, carnelian is sort of red, orangish, and then there's this. It describes there's this rainbow all around it that looks like an emerald. And so you get this picture of God that's kind of hard to get your your fingers around, but you get. the You get the fact that it's just sort of glowing and beautiful and just sort of dazzling. And I thought about it like this. It would be like if I if I was trying to describe a material to you, and and I said, look, this thing that I saw, it's like marble. You know what marble is. I said, it's like marble, but but it was clear. And, And and you could see in it, and what you could see in it, it was sort of like the blue sky with like light, you know, wispy clouds. And, and it was swirling around and moving. And you would say, like, okay, I know what marble is, but marble, you can't see through marble and it doesn't move. And my response would probably be something like, yes, and it was beautiful. Right? Like, I, I can't describe it, but it, it just is amazing. And I think that's what we get the picture We get the picture that he's incredibly powerful. Verse 5, look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Just try to picture that. It doesn't say that there are sparks or fireworks coming off the throne. It says the lightning is coming off the throne. There's fire surrounding it. It's the picture from from Exodus on Mount Sinai. When God shows up and he he descends on the mountain in fire, and the Israelites, right, the whole country is terrified. That's the kind of power uh, that we get the picture of here. Light have you you ever been really like disturbingly close to lightning? There have been a couple of times when I've been, unfortunately, close enough to lightning where you can hear the lightning, not the thunder but you hear like the hiss, the sear, right? And then it's just this immediate boom, right? If you've experienced that, you know, like that it is, it's hard to describe. And that's the picture of God's power. That's just a taste of his power. We get the picture, or it says that he is, he is holy. Verse eight, the creatures that surround the throne, we'll look at them in just a minute. They sing over and over that God is holy, holy, holy. If I asked you the number one attribute of God before we talked about this, would you have said, because I think it's the truth, holy. That's His number one attribute. It's the only one in Scripture that is repeated three times. To the Hebrew, uh, right, you didn't, you know, in Hebrew you didn't have italics or, uh, you know, you couldn't underline stuff or, you know, type in all caps. And so to emphasize something, you would repeat it. And so like in Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah sees God and he says he is holy, holy, holy. Three times holy. And what does that mean? It basically means just different. Totally other. Just almost like don't even know what to do with it. It's just, a, it's just different. And God is described as holy, holy, holy. And I want you to notice what's happening before this most beautiful, most powerful, and most holy God. What's happening? Everyone and everything is worshiping it. Worshiping him. Verse 4, you see that there are 24 elders on thrones around God's throne. They fall down, uh, they fall down around it. They cast their crowns around it. And they say, worthy are you, O Lord and God, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So, look, who are these worshippers? Let's try to you know figure that out real quick. All right. So, first, the twenty-four elders. What are, what's that all about? Twenty-four thrones. Scholars differ on this. I think it's fairly clear uh, to say that uh, they represent the twelve tribes of Israel and the uh, the twelve apostles, the the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. And so, what you see, I think, I think fairly straightforward. Is this vision of the entirety representative, the, the entirety of God's people worshiping Him? They're worshiping. And then we get these strange, you know, these four strange living creatures. Verse 7 and 8. They've got, there's one that looks like an ox, an eagle, a lion, a man, they have wings, they have eyes. It's really weird. What is it? Well, they pop up earlier. Remember, we've said that to understand Revelation, you've got we're gonna go back to the Old Testament a lot. They pop up in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 1. We see them there in God's throne room. And I think, I think this is the idea. Uh, four tends to be the number of creation. You have the four corners of the earth, the four winds, those sorts of things. So this seems to be representative of, of the created order. Right? What You've got um, sort of the mightiest domestic animal and the ox uh, the mightiest sort of wild land animal, and the lion, uh, uh, the the mightiest animal of the air, and then you have man. So, yeah, it seems to be representative of all of creation. And what you see is that it's... That everything is worshiping God. And I think the point, the, the point of the vision is that there really is one central thing to the universe. There really is one greatest thing in the world, in the universe. There is one thing worth dedicating uh, your life and everything that you are to, and it's God. It's the God who sits on the throne. I think we could say it this way, that the reality of the universe is that there's only one being that's worthy of worship. Now, look, if you're sitting there thinking that the, fact, the thought of worshiping God forever, you know, worshiping forever, sounds really boring, then I want to suggest to you that you, you actually don't believe that. And here's why. Here's why I say that. Because worship is something that's fun and exciting and thrilling, and you and I both do it all the time. Because worship is really, in a sense, nothing more than when, when you and I say, that was or is awesome. That's what worship is. When you look at something, think about something, and you say, that is awesome. And so I, I just want you to think about it for a second. What, what makes you say, wow? What is it in your life that, that makes you say, wow, that is great. That is awesome. What is it that fires you up? Is it, you know, it might be, it might be sex. It might be uh, making money. It might be making good grades. It might be um, your family. It might be football or a TV show. Any number of things, right? What is it for you that makes your soul, your heart say, wow, that is awesome. That's what I want. Because all of those things, and, and certainly you know, plenty more, can, can get that from us, but, but they sort of slip through our fingers, don't they? Right? We, you can't quite hang on to it. But this vision is coming to us and showing us, look, this is the one thing that really is worthy of your worship. It really is deserving of it. And this vision is trying to reorient us to what's real. It's trying to show us, look, this, this is the one thing that will truly make your soul say, wow. It's showing us what's normal, and we forget. Um, At uh, at training, our RUF campus minister training uh, several years ago, was in some sort of session, and I uh, can't remember what we were talking about, but one guy asked, uh, one of our you know, coordinators was leading the discussion, and he asked him a question, and he basically said, look, our group, um, he said, they, they wanna sing songs, like our RUF songs, all the time. Like, no matter what we do, they wanna sing songs, right? And he said, like, I'm for that, but at the same time, I wanna, I wanna, you know, I wanna sort of communicate to campus that we can be normal, too. Right. Like we can just play a game sometimes and we don't have to, you know, sing songs about Jesus. And, and I think basically all the other campus ministers there were kind of like, yeah, all right, I get that I'm with you. And uh, the, uh, the, the coordinator you know, thought about it for a second. And he says, yeah, he says, but, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that one of the things that we're trying to do on campus is model to people, model to campus. That there is nothing more normal than singing songs to Jesus. That's what, that's the definition of normal. We are trying to model that to campus. And you can kind of feel the whole room, right, just go like, yes, right, yes. Kind of forgot that. Not that we don't do things where we don't sing songs, right, But, but we tend to forget we tend to forget and God pulls back the curtain of reality and he shows us life does have a center and there really is something that's that's the greatest thing in the world and it's him that your your boyfriend or girlfriend is not the greatest thing in the world having a good job after college is not the greatest thing in the world having the you know the best marriage or the you know the, the perfect number of kids or you know fill in the blank for yourself it's not the greatest thing in the world. Because the, the problem is if, we, if we, they're not worthy of our worship. The problem is if we set them up as worthy of our worship, one of two things is going to happen. Uh, first, we'll either keep trying to worship those things and, and we'll keep running after them trying to, to grab that wow factor and get it and we just never get it. Or we actually do get it you do sort of get that, you know, you, you push that button and you get that, this is awesome, right? This is what I was built for feeling just a little bit, and, and then it's gone. And we spend, our, we spend our whole lives trying to chase it again and again. But you're never going to get enough. And so those things end up owning us. And really, if you think about it, that might explain a lot of why, of why you feel like your schoolwork owns you. Or why you feel like your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend owns you. Or maybe why the approval of your parents owns you. Because our hearts have set it up as the, as the one thing that matters most. And we'll do anything to get, that, to get that wow from it. So we have to be reoriented. right, To see that there is one thing worthy that can bear the weight of your worship. And it's the one that's on the throne. Alright, so let me end with this thought. What's so great about this greatest thing? Right, besides the fact that what we saw is just like the sheer power. And it, it seems to be beautiful. But what is it about it? And again, we're going to zero in on this next week. So we're just, I'm just going to give you a quick taste of it. So I hope you come back. But what you see, what we see, is that nothing else that you can worship loves you back. And what you see here, it, you get this vision of the throne of a God that is almighty and powerful and holy, holy, holy. And he is a God that loves you and is gracious towards you. He actually cares about you. Where do we see that? It's sort of implicit here because we're going to get it you know, in, in the next vision. But did you notice how, how John and how you and I got into the throne room? Did you even notice that? Like, how, how did we get to see this? It's because we got invited in. And we got invited in by Jesus. Did you see that? What does he say? He says, come and see this. Jesus invites us into the throne room himself. He brings us in. Which is crazy if you think about this place that is so beautiful that if we, if we stepped in it, we would ruin it. And Jesus says, I want you to come so how do we get to go? Well, we get to go in because we're with the son. We get to go in on his merits. Uh, years ago when I was a youth minister, uh, before, I did, um, before I did RUF, I uh, was a youth minister and one of the elders in our church was the president of one of the local banks. And so I banked there and, uh, you know, a couple times I'd go see him in his office. And when I would go see him, you know, you got to go to his secretary and say, Hey, I'm here to see so-and-so the president and so she would you know ask your name and like all right so what do you have business with him what's the deal and she'd call back and then she'd walk you back there you know you don't just like bust up into the president's office but his his son was in the youth group and one day I was walking around town with the son and he said hey let's go in and see my dad I was like all right yeah that's fun. and so we walk in and we didn't do any of that we walked right by the secretary. He, like, you know, sort of flips his hand at the secretary, calls her by her first name, and says, hey, we're going to see my dad. He's me. And we, we just walk up, and we just sort of bust into his office. Now, why did I get to do that? I didn't get to do that because of me, right? Somebody probably would have tackled me before that. I got to go in. I got to have that kind of access because I was with his son, I got to go in on his merit for free. And that's what we get just a little taste of here. And that's the good news that I want you to hear tonight. That the one that's on the throne is the same one that invites us in, and he's the same one that came to this earth, and he lived and died in our place so that he can give you his righteousness. So that you can come in. So that you can come in and worship. He's gracious, and he's good, and that's an invitation to you. And I hope that you take it. Let me pray for us, Heavenly Father. We are um, we are thankful that you would give us this vision of reality that we so easily and so quickly forget. That you are on the throne, you are in perfect control. Nothing happens. Not a bad grade. Not a bad phone call. Not a, not a bad war, not a terrorist attack. Nothing happens outside of your perfect control. And you are a God who is worshipped because you are almighty and because you are gracious. You are kind to people that don't deserve it like us. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing our last song.